You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. of all of the Bible. Uh, it was actually instrumental in my coming to faith uh, as a young teenager. I remember reading the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, along with other scriptures in 1 Corinthians 13 and other places. But the book of Matthew, it's parables, it's stories, it's kind of a detail-oriented uh, description of, of, of the thematic overview of Jesus' life and times, um, spoke to me in a, in a very, very important way. And, uh, and the reason why we're looking at the book of Matthew is because Matthew is written uh, by a Jewish writer, as all of the books were, to a Jewish audience and intended, as the video talks about, to try and capture each and every single moment of the disciples following along the path of their rabbi Jesus, not just you know, the bigger uh, sermon moments or the bigger parable moments or the truth moments, but also every moment in between, the big ones, the small ones, the public ones, the private ones, the important massive ones of transfiguration and the small quiet ones interpersonally between Jesus and the disciples. And there's three segments that we've looked at. This is the third segment. We divide them into different chapter uh, nuggets so we can kind of grasp some of the themes because Matthew isn't written chronologically so much as it is thematically. The segment that we're in right now, everybody say, blindness, and everybody say belief. The segment right now that we're in uh, featuring Matthew uh, chapter 11 through 13 is the aftermath of some of the earlier parts of Jesus' ministry. Matthew 5 through 7 uh, features some of the greatest sermons Jesus ever gave, or the sermon, rather, in the Sermon on the Mount, on the, uh, sermon, the, the mountain of Galilee that he gave between Matthew's five, Matthew chapter 5 and 7. Getting off of the mountain from 8 through 10, we see some of the most miraculous, powerful events in Jesus' ministry. And now in 11 through 13, we see some of the aftermath of that, some of the, um, some of the interpretation of those events, some of the, uh, the popular opinion of what people saw and the meanings that they drew from the actions of Jesus. And what we see through the, uh, through the interactions and the engagements of Jesus with the teachers, with the crowds, with the individuals, the blind people, the paralytics, is that there were different verdicts on him, different verdicts on his reputation, different uh, uh, perspectives on what was going on in the life of Jesus and in the ministry of Jesus. And, and Matthew closes um, this segment, really, of, of, of people responding to the work and the sermons and the teachings of Jesus with this parable called the parable of the seed and the sower. And he says, he says, the word of God, this is the way that Jesus describes it, it's like these seeds that are scattered on this path. Maybe you're familiar with this. That Jesus is indiscriminate of, 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 of showing revelation of who God is and what God is like and what God is up to in 2019, let alone back in, 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 in the in, in the times of Jesus, and he's scattering these spiritual seeds, and, and he's saying some of the seeds land on fertile soil, but some of them land on, on hard soil. Some of them land on hearts that are ready to believe, they're cultivated, and some of them land on hearts that are rigid in unbelief. And a lot of us, we think, like, if we were just to live back then, like, if we were to live back in Moses' day and actually see a burning bush with our own eyes, or if we were to see, you know, fire come down on some wet wood in Elijah's days, or if we were to see Jesus hire, you know, heal a blind man, like, then we would believe. This is what we, we think. But Jesus is quite, quite apparent, quite obvious at the end of Matthew chapter 13. The, the, the ability to move from blindness into belief isn't about our optics. It, it's not about what enters our eye gate. It's not about what goes into our ears. As a matter of fact, in our age and our era, because of the grace of the Holy Spirit and the, and the chronology of history, we're have, we have more access to encouragement and kingdom proof than ever before. 
if you have a phone in your pocket. You have more access to kingdom proof and kingdom evidence than ever before, yet we have rampant unbelief in our society. It's not so much the optics, it's more about the heart, Jesus would say. It's, it's what's in our heart that allows us to see, not our eyes. Um, let me pray for us. And so, Holy Spirit, we just, we welcome you here, and we want to be receptive to what you have to say. And when we read scriptures like this, it teaches us that, that this world is not lacking of you, it's lacking in humility, it's lacking in receptivity, it's lacking to spiritual responsiveness, God. And, and, and these scriptures remind us of, of the closedness of our heart, it reminds us that you are evident, apparent, and you're not hiding, that we'd have to go and find you out, that you're evident, you're, you're hiding in plain sight, you're right in front of us, and Jesus, that you would give us a heart that would see and understand, that would seek you, God, and know you um, in the innermost place, in Jesus' name, amen. So my first experience with the charismatic church um, was in college, at least the charismatic church that wasn't um, part of television ministry like TBN late at 4 o'clock in the morning, you know. Um, I had on my floor, the RA on my floor, on the fourth floor of Curry Reed Dorm, which I went to IU. They won yesterday in the final, in the March Madness tournament by like two points, which was awesome. Uh, it was like a six-foot-four African-American man named Josh who was a ballerina, the Lord came to talk to me through all sorts of people in my story, in your story too. His name was Josh Sutton. He was a ballerina, and he went on to be a grad student to become a lawyer. So God works in wonderful, paradoxical ways. And uh, I remember we used, to, uh, we used to worship a lot. Back in that day, we listened to a lot of Shane and Shane. You guys know what Shane and Shane is? Let me just hook you up on Spotify. Shane and Shane, if you guys want to know, are still cooking strong. And they actually had a, uh, uh, they had a competition to see if there was other Shane out there because they wanted to have three Shanes. They wanted to start a band called Shane and Shane and Shane, but they're literally that awesome. And their vocal cords are that, you know, not from this earth and this planet that they couldn't find a third leg for this act. But we used to listen to, uh, you know, it's like asking, I'll give you the nations to you, used to sing that song. You know, I don't know if you guys remember this, but like the Lord is gracious, he's slow to anger. You know, these songs, these psalms that uh, really Shane and Shane um, wrote in, in these kind of cover albums that came out in the early 2000s, back when the Shane and Shanes were the best, the best ofs. And we would worship for, for, for hours, it seemed like, and we would pray, pray, and worship, and pray, and pray some more. And um, my experience with faith, which was largely through programmatic, you know, youth group and programmatic, um, you know, kind of like theology, learning theology, um, uh, kind of um, walking out, you know, what, what I thought the Bible applied through kind of mainly intellectual application, um, gave way to um, more experiential connection with God through this time period in the early 2000s. And I remember um, through that relationship, uh, there was this, this one window of time, I think it was spring break, or maybe it was like sometime near the summer, that uh, Josh, I remember, um, he, he was so excited about some of the things that I had uh, connected with for the first time in my faith. And because um, the presence of God and the idea of like speaking in tongues and prophetic ministry and all this sort of stuff, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was so significant in his personal faith. And because he loved me so much, um, he, he had this idea where he wanted to fly me into his church, like fly down to Atlanta and go be part of kind of this revival um, kind of uh, uh, series or season that he was, he was having his church. And so it was this one spring, me and this other guy that used to do worship with him, uh, 311 Reed Dormitory, uh, um, we flew down to Atlanta together and went to this service. 
And this service was way different than any other kind of like the Willow Creek model of church that I'd ever been to or the youth group model that I'd ever been to. This service wasn't 45 minutes and it was time to go play Chubby Bunny. This service went on for a long period of time. I did not have the faith stamina to keep up. I think I took a nap a few times, woke up, and it was still going on. And we were still running and gunning and people were shouting and running around and doing all sorts of crazy stuff. And, and, uh, and there wasn't anything unbiblical going on. There wasn't anything that you couldn't find in 1 Corinthians 14. There wasn't anything you couldn't find in, first, in, in, in Romans, you know, chapter 12. You, you, there, there wasn't anything going on that was extra biblical going on, but it was, it was definitely experiential beyond what I experienced before. And I remember uh, speaking with Kyra, um, telling her that the experience that I had in those services, I think it was like a Friday night service and a Saturday night service and a Sunday morning service, was really foreign to me um, and actually a lot different from what I experienced with Josh in the dorm room. That somehow between the intimate, connected, personal space of worship with Josh, just the me and the Taylor acoustic guitar and Shane and Shane and then Oliver, uh, there was a big gap between that, that dorm room experience and the bigger kind of church experience. And, and it, was, it was sort of a, a negative one, I would add. Um, there was a disconnect for me. Um, it felt like everyone was kind of part of a party that I didn't know how to get into. I don't know if you've ever been to a church service like this before. It felt like there was a lot of things going on that I didn't really understand or have language for. And though I wanted to believe it, I couldn't believe it. And in my heart of hearts, I kind of felt like um, if there's people experiencing things of God that I'm not experiencing these things, um, am I really known by God? Does God really love me as much as the people that are experiencing the things around me? And instead of connection, instead of drawing near and closer to Jesus in that public event, I felt myself distancing myself from the event, questioning the event, and becoming suspicious of the event. And so um, what we're going to get into today in terms of the book of Matthew is, is that Jesus is going to get into this encounter with some of these Pharisees, as, as he's done in the earlier parts of the chapter in chapter 12 that we've looked at from last Sunday. And he's going to find some, some resistance um, to the, the power and the miracles and the healings that are going on um, in his ministry, in, in his surroundings. And through the, the ongoings, I think we're going to see some very important um, highlights of why that would be and what it is causing the distance between Jesus and the people that are in his audience. So we're in Matthew chapter 12. It starts in verse 22. And the Pharisees, along with the crowd... Uh, by this time, Jesus has this massive um, reputation for healing people and doing things people have never seen and saying things people have never said. And underneath the banner of what's called the kingdom of God, uh, bringing forth this kind of movement and this commotion, right? And so they bring this demon-possessed man, and now catch this, who is both blind and mute. So Jesus has already healed the blind person back in Matthew chapter 8. He's healed people that were mute, that were not mentioned explicitly in the gospel of Matthew. And he's already cast demons out of people. But this would have been the first time that somebody cast a demon out of somebody that was both blind and mute. Um, there was healings back then. And many of the Pharisees, teachers of the law, as well as rabbis uh, were competent in exercising evil spirits. And in healing people, maybe not with as much success as Jesus was. This guy, though, that was the kind of trifecta of the healing ministry, the person that's demon-possessed, blind, and mute, seems like this kind of, if, if nobody else can heal it, maybe Jesus can. Let's challenge him. Let's see how, of, uh, of a healer, how much of a healer he is. Let's put this impossible case in front of Jesus to see exactly how uh, potent his healing ministry is. And Jesus puts his hand on him. It says in verse 22, and when he prays for him, 
something about the presence of God causes this man who beforehand was filled with a demonic presence, couldn't speak or see, uh, now can speak and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? So I want everybody to close your eyes right now. Close your eyes. And, and I want you to, I want us as a room to try and empathize before this person becomes a number rather than a name, to personalize, to experience potentially through empathy, through, through imagination, what this might be like, right? So your eyes are closed. Everybody's eyes are closed? Okay, so everybody's eyes are closed. And, and I want this to stick in like, this guy has never seen the color orange before. You, if you were this person, right? You're blind, um, you can't see, you've never seen before, you've, you're mute, and, you're, and you're, you're haunted by a demonic, oppressive spirit. And you've never been able to see your mother. You've never been able to tell your mother you love her. You've never been able to, uh, to see the sunrise or see the stars. You've heard about them potentially, but you, you've never been able to see these things. And there's this commotion and, and this talk and reputation of this healer that's greater than all healers, this healer that might be like a capital H healer that comes. And, and this man comes to your town, and you can feel his presence. The Gospels say, it's interesting, like the people that were blind, ironically, and it's not by mistake, could actually sense Jesus' presence and understand his messianic position more than people that had eyes to see. The expectation and the hope and maybe some of the longing and, and some of the insecurity, they all kind of collide and you feel this rabbi's hand put his fingers on your forehead, put his hand on your eyes. The scriptures don't even say what verbally comes out of Jesus' mouth, but the presence of God touches this person made by God, made in God's image. You, touches you. And your eyes begin to open up. Let's open our eyes. And you see this, this person for the very first time, like you've heard his voice and you've heard of his reputation. And your heart even kind of longs for someone like this, like even, even the handicapped of being, handicappedness of being blind, like, like, like screams out and, and asks out for, for a Messiah, for a healer, for somebody that could come and meet you right where you are. And you open your eyes for the first time and something about his presence like just has this peace about him. Like the scriptures kind of talk about that, like with the woman at the well or people that were, that were touched by Jesus. People just knew that he was more than just a healing ministry. People knew that he was, he was greater than that. And matter of fact, the crowds even said, could this be the son of David? There's something in your heart that knows he's more than just the guy that put his hand on you. There's something about eternity in this guy's eyes and in his voice. And you have this experience. And, and I don't know, maybe what would be the first words that would come to mind when you first cast your gaze on a person like this, on this person that, that has just opened your eyes of a lifetime of, hand, of handicap of not being able to see, what would be the first thing to come to mind? A, a friend? A healer? The scriptures say throughout history, but especially in this event, that even the blind and the crowds knew this could be the son of David. This could be the Messiah. The language that would come out of your mouth, this could have been the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the, the, the great shepherd, the great I am, the one that was the promised one. This was a natural inclination of the crowds. Now catch this. 
In verse 24, the, the, the page turns and it says, But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only Beelzebub, another name for the, the Lord of demons, the highest demon, in, in this case, potentially even the devil. It is only by the devil that this person, Jesus, is casting out uh, demons. So you guys have probably seen before in, uh, in maybe like psychology class or maybe uh, physiology or anatomy. Do you guys know this little known fact or interesting point about the human face? Did you know that it's easier to smile than to frown? Uh, they have this thing where you can study like that muscles are, are, in a, are set up in a certain way so that it actually, when I make my frowny face like this, uh, like, like I'm doing right now, this is actually taking more muscles than it takes th than to smile. And I bring all that up because it's interesting to me, right? Like we need to take account that the uneducated uh, people that were furthest from the religious temple system, the people that knew the least about God and spent the least amount of time reading the scriptures, were the least literate, knew who God was, while the people that were the most literate and spent their most amount of time trying to learn about God didn't. And that's an important fact to understand because what that tells us is that faith, a lot like smiling, uh, is actually easier than doubt. That the, the minority, the majority of the people, when they see a man that has been crippled from death or crippled from birth, you know, a person that is blind from birth has never seen the light of a sun. And when Jesus comes in his healing ministry, puts his hand on, on that uh, person's forehead and their eyes are opened up, there's only one word in their dictionary to call that man Messiah, son of David, king of kings, Lord of lords. There's something built into the compassion ministry of Jesus that when he shows up on the scene and puts his hands on people and things change, the, the temperature of the environment changes, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's obvious to the people and the crowds who Jesus is, but it's not obvious to the people of, of the Pharisees and the Pharisaical camp, which shows us what? Which shows us that, that faith is actually not about addition. Faith is about subtraction and letting go. Faith isn't about adding and gaining wisdom. Faith is about letting go of earthly understanding. Faith is less about the, the straining of, of trying to believe something that isn't true. It's more about releasing and, and receiving what is actually true and built in, into our hearts. I want you to catch this because this is the thing is we think that that growing in faith is about adding to our understanding and adding to the information and adding to the hours and hours on end in prayer. But what Jesus tells us at the very end of chapter 11, before we get into chapter 12, that the people that receive the kingdom of heaven are actually more like six-year-olds than they are like 66-year-olds. That they're more like children, that it's actually easier to have faith, that faith isn't about adding something, it's about letting go of something, and that the, 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 the prospect of moving from blindness into belief is really less you know, about straining into something, but it's about relaxing and receiving like a child. And the kingdom of heaven, it's, it was written, I mean, Stephen read it this morning before we, we got into worship through the Lent reading when we were talking about, you know, the, the idea of, 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 of Moses' ministry not being as strong and as permanent as Jesus' ministry. What that thing says in Hebrews is that, is that the old temple code has passed away. And the old law, which was written on stone, is now written on our heart. And then it says, and now we can boldly go into his presence like children, knowing that when we come to him, we are not going to be denied. A child that's coming to Jesus, a person that just wants Jesus in need and not trying to prove Jesus by fact or by occasion or by miracle, that that is the person that's going to see Jesus. It is more natural to have faith than to have doubt. It is more easy to have faith than to have doubt. 
But yet the Pharisees continue to have doubt. And they not only have doubt, this is where it gets interesting, they have doubt and they demonize Jesus, not only to themselves and to others. This is how the story continues. In verse 25, Jesus, it says, knew their thoughts. And he says, every kingdom that is divided against itself is ruined, but every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can the kingdom stand? So the, so the Pharisees, they not only say that we doubt who you are, they're saying, um, they're, they're saying not only are you not the Messiah, the one that's come to bring kingdom and restoration to the earth, you're actually of the spirit of Beelzebub. You're the devil incarnate, and you are not speaking in power of Holy Spirit and prophecy. You're speaking in the demonic uh, presence and force of, of the world, of the darkness, of the evil, of the age. And Jesus makes these really important uh, statements that we have to kind of understand the Jewish mindset to really get what he's doing here. But the Jewish idea for God and evil is that there isn't gray. There isn't a, a kind of kind of good or kind of evil. There's just God and then there's everything else. So, for example, if the Jews were to look at something more culturally relevant today, like the difference between, you know, Disney and Freddy Krueger, there wouldn't be a huge distinction for them because to them, it wasn't the difference between good, kind of good, and not so, as much good and evil. It was just God and everything else. And so the, the meaning of argument kind of breaks in here. He's going, look, it's either one or the other. Either I'm from the kingdom of God or I'm not. Either I'm evil or I'm completely God. It's one or the other. And they have no argument about this because they don't live in a kind of fragmented society. They live in a polarized society. And so they live in either God or not God. And so he makes this argument. He's going, so either you're going to believe that that thing was a demonic presence and I am the Messiah that's come to bring God's reign and rule perfectly in the earth, or you're believing you have to therefore necessarily say that that person who is demonically held down, pressed down for their life, they were blind and mute for their entire days up until this point, that that demonic presence was the kingdom of God and that would make me Beelzebub. But you can't choose one or the other. You can't, you can't choose both of them. You can only choose one or the other. Then he moves on to a second argument in verse 27. He says, If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. So as I said earlier, the healing ministry idea and the, and the exorcism kind of ministry thing is not new to the scene. That, that many of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had actually practiced exorcism and cast out demons and all sorts of evil spirits. And so what he's saying is that if you're going to judge me and condemn me based on that, you have to condemn all of the practices of all these people that you wouldn't want to politically cut ties with. And so he's saying it's one or the other, either I'm God or I'm not. Either I'm good completely or I'm completely evil. But this is what he says, and I think it's important to apply for us today in verse 28. But he says, but this is the thing. If it's possible in the court of your comprehension and understanding, if it's possible that this demon was cast out, not by good, good thoughts or good deeds, but if this demon was cast out by the Spirit of God, that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If by the Spirit of God I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So what he's saying is this, is that if the kingdom of God is, is, is in a moment, if there's healing in a moment, if there is... Uh, if there is darkness turned into light in the moment, if there's charity in the moment, if there's kindness in the moment, if there's something of the kingdom of God, none of that can happen outside of the Spirit of God. And then if the Spirit of God is in a moment, if there's the Holy Spirit living in a person or living in a moment, then the Spirit of God can only apply itself in one way, and that is in the kingdom of God. It's one or the other. And so what I learned in my 
experience back in college in the dorm room and then my experience in the bigger kind of charismatic service that I attended that one weekend, I actually learned a lot. The first thing that I learned, which I think is in this scripture really, is that Jesus' healings then and now are compassion ministries. They're not magic shows. So Jesus, you'll notice several times, refuses to do magic show proof text ministry where they ask him for a sign. They actually ask him earlier, hey, show us a sign if you're the Messiah, which first of all, you got to scratch your head and go, now hang on here. I just healed a blind person. I just uh, raised the crippled person up off onto their feet. And now at the bottom of this same chapter with the same audience, because I did it on the Sabbath, you're asking me to prove my ministry by showing you a sign. I'm not God. I have no signs for you. And so many times, this should really bother us, right? He says, he says to his audience, he goes, this healing that I just did, I don't want you to tell anybody about it. To which we're going, Jesus, you got about three years on this earth. You know it. We know it. If you want to get the world changed, you better go ahead and have a public ministry. Listen, Jesus isn't interested in a public ministry. He's interested in a personal ministry. And, and the ministry that happened with that blind man, when our eyes were closed, right, and we empathize what it's like to to not see the sun rise, but only feel it on our face, and then have a man touch us on the forehead. That's not a magic show ministry. That's a compassion ministry. That's a man who stopped, had, had, no, had no reason to stop for us, but yet still stopped for us, pulled over to the side of the road, put his hand on us, and now we're healed. It wasn't about his reputation. It was about his care, and it was about his heart. And so what I realized from the dormitory to the experience of the big church ministry is that one, Jesus is not doing a magic show. He's doing a compassion ministry. And two, that the kingdom of God uh, is a public thing. Like our faith is public. And we, we want to give an account for when someone asks us about what we stand for and what we believe in and what we, what we give our time to and what we give our heart and our lives to. We absolutely want to live a public life, but Jesus' ministry always is not political. Jesus' ministry is not to win by way of, of convincing. It's to win by way of compassion that the experience that somebody has in the dorm room is significant. Why? Because it's not a public winning argument. It's a personal encounter with Jesus. And so, and so my, my story kind of continued from that place where, where I kind of got engaged in a, in a local church ministry that I believe was operating in a place of both spirit and truth. And what happened out of that is that I developed relationships with the pastors and the small group leaders there and the worship leader there that knew me and knew my name. I wasn't just a guy in a line that they were trying to get to fall over. I wasn't just a person that they were trying to prove a point to, that they were trying to prove their kind of like idea for. I was a person that they loved. I was a brother in that family. I was a person in that small group. And so I remember that the, that the pathway there of, of really like three or four years where I was pretty, not bitter, but I was closed off to the idea that the Spirit of God would move and he would have a prophetic word for me or he would, you know, do something off the page and do something impossible. Like I was pretty closed to it because I had kind of put it inside of a box. And I said all of that stuff, because I had experiences as disorganized and sort of um, hurtful to me, I put it all inside of a box and I kind of packed it away and avoided it whenever it would come up. I remember I was in a small group. My wife, uh, I would say dragged me to it, but I went to it with my wife and it was a wonderful time. Um, and it was called, it was something like hearing God's voice. 
And uh, some of you guys' husbands maybe have been in these situations before, right, where your wife wants you to go to something and you're there because she's there, not because of anybody else. Amen, if you're with me on that. You can say it under your breath if you want to. And so it's Randy and Sheila. They made some sweet cornbread for the small group. Sweet people. Listen to my story. There's probably like, I don't know, 12 of us in the group. And I'm just there because Kyra's there. It's like night four. I got my arms crossed, and I'm just like, this is just the stupidest thing. You know, like, God doesn't talk, you know, to us in these, like, special revelations and these things. Like, he's said everything he needs in Scripture and that sort of thing. And just kind of choosing the parts of the Bible that I wanted to listen to and kind of ignoring the other parts. And it was like night, night four. I remember we were in this old, you know, community church in Randy and Sheila and just the kindest, most disarming, loving sort of way began to tell me things they shouldn't know about me. And the scripture talks about that as one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That's called the word of knowledge. And it wasn't something that in the lifespan of me talking to them happened quite prevalently, but it was something that certainly did happen. It was pretty undeniable. They were speaking things we used to say, you know, that should only be in your Gmail. They're, they're telling you things that are only, you know, they wouldn't know or shouldn't have known. And so at that point, you really have to decide what you're going to do with that because it happened. And so you have to decide, is it Beelzebub or is it the Spirit of God? Because it's one or the other. You know it's power. But the important part about this part of the story is that it was given in love and in proximity rather than the public pulpit. And it was something that wasn't like, you know, broadcasted as, you know, either you're in or you're out and you have to make your decision. It was a personal, relational, love-centered, relational ministry that allowed me to go from blindness in that area into belief. And, and this is my point today. It's not just the, quote, spirit-filled movement, which, by the way, let me say this. I really don't like the idea to say, well, the Holy Spirit is now active because there's prophecy, tongues, and healing. It takes just as much Holy Spirit to run a bus ministry and transport kids across the street to get to a church. I don't understand why we have to say Holy Spirit only shows up when they're speaking in tongues, but that's a whole other rant for me. Okay, the Holy Spirit is everywhere, and anyone that's convicted of sin has been touched by the Holy Spirit. So we don't want to blast from the Holy Spirit by saying he doesn't do supernatural things, but we also don't want to blast from him by saying he doesn't do anything natural. Because the Holy Spirit's both natural and supernatural. He's working all the time because he cares for people, not because he's putting on a magic show. And so... What I'm here to say today is that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit doesn't just have to say you don't believe in, you know, Pentecostal charismatic things. And I'm not here. And, and if that's something that the Lord has convicted on your heart to not be involved in any of those things, I don't think it makes us any less or more of a son or daughter of God. Because the, the only thing, the most important thing about the kingdom of God is that Jesus is king. Is who's on the throne. That's the most important thing about the kingdom of God. Not about all the signs and wonders and all that kind of stuff is my point. But we can be just as blasphemous about the Holy Spirit in all sorts of other areas. Because we have personal interactions with, you know, the seeker-friendly church or, you know, the doctrine-centered church or the purpose-driven church or the worship-centered church, because we have these personal experiences, what I believe can happen in the most extreme sense, of course, is closing your door to sensitivity of the Holy Spirit. But we can also close the door to also parts of the kingdom of God. And this is my sermon and sentence that I want to put up this morning. It says this. Think about this in your own life. When we box in the kingdom of God in our lives, this is what I'm proposing here as, as, as the argument. He says it's by the spirit of God that the kingdom of God can come. You cannot have anything kingdom by chicken noodle soup with Oprah. The kingdom of God isn't just nice feelings. The kingdom of God says Jesus is Lord and operates in the fruits and the gifts of the Spirit. And the kingdom of God is impossible without the Spirit of God. 
So if a church next door or down the street is seeing people going from death into spiritual life, being born again in the kingdom of God, then the spirit of God is present. And how dare us ever say anything negative about that church or about that ministry just because it doesn't operate the same way as it does for us. You see, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the idea of closing off sides of, of what the Holy Spirit wants to do, is not, it's, it's, not going to, it's not hurting Jesus' feelings as much as it's closing the, the opportunity for us to experience the kingdom of God in its fullness. And God wants to experience all of his kingdom fruit. And when I close the door to a ministry that we feel is, you know, that I feel is shallow or whatever, isn't teaching the enough you know, deep things of God and the doctrine of God, but yet still has fruit of the kingdom of God, that's closing off. That must necessarily either be of Beelzebub or of the spirit of God. And if it's raising people from spiritual death into spiritual life, and I flippantly cast it aside as something that's irrelevant or old or too uh, strict or too you know, theological or too experiential or whatever it is category that I close the door and box in the kingdom of God, I have necessarily closed myself to the heart of the spirit of God. And so this is what he says. You want to watch out for this. He has this really important warning that's in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not forgiven. Yikes. Verse 32. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or age to come. I want to just say this before you doze off and don't pay attention to what the rest I'm going to say. Is that, is that if you are worried, because there's lots of recordings of people that have been so uh, struck and so smitten and so confused by this verse where they think, maybe I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit in a way that has disconnected me from God permanently. I want to give you an encouragement that if you're even slightly worried about the question, you probably most likely have not committed this sin. The, th the idea here is that Jesus, who is di died, buried, and resurrected, uh, has, has preached to the nations the gospel, which means that anyone that accepts him can be forgiven. That Paul was forgiven for his murder of people before his conversion, that Peter was forgiven for his blasphemy consistently, that the thieves on the, on the cross to the left and the right were absolutely forgiven, uh, even, on, even on their deathbed, so to speak, even at the last hour. So that the idea is nobody is beyond the forgiveness of Jesus. But what this passage is telling us and needs to be taken with a level of sobriety is that there are ways that if we are disconnected from the yoke of Jesus, dis disconnected from the truth of Jesus, from the scripture of Jesus, if, if there are ways that we close ourselves off and build walls against God because of offense, there are walls so thick that we can build against God that even as he knocks on the door of our heart, that we can't hear the knock that he's saying. We are beyond, because that's why it says, even in this age, an age to come. So this is, this is what the, the passage is essentially saying. Um, is, that, is that the kingdom of God is evident. The kingdom of God is evident to children. To blind people can see the kingdom of God. But what can happen is that in my experience with life, with my disappointment, in the ways that God has come through for me or has not come through to me, what can begin to happen, like the Pharisees, he's warning them. Now, he's not saying they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit just because he didn't recognize, you know, something that God did in a moment. But he's saying, the temptation of trying to call something that is of God, the temptation of criticizing it, putting it in a box, relegating it off to something that's too old or too old-fashioned or too CCM or too cliche or too commercial, the idea of taking something that God has created in the earth, 
for the redemption of his people, for the redemption of his bride, for his bride, us kind of boxing that off and saying that's no longer part of it and that's not part of my life and I'm going to close my door to it, that is an important thing to watch out for. Because, because not only will I begin to harden my heart to it and close myself off to it, but I'll close off doors of the people around me. And I'll begin to, to, the scriptures would talk about, kind of sear the conscience of the people around me and the people I influence and the people in my life. And when God begins to knock on that door, I'll, I'll just say, well, if it's not, you know, if it's not just, you know, just closed Bible, um, not experiential Christianity, that I'll have nothing to do, do with it. He's saying, if it's in the scripture and you close your heart to it, you'll miss parts of the kingdom of God. And he's inviting us, not chastising us, to have the entirety of the kingdom of God and the entirety of the spirit of God. And so this is my, um, this is kind of what I, what I see in this thing. You've got us, we've got to start asking ourselves this question then. Like, and this is the passage that I'll close us on to help give us, I think, a compass through what I think Jesus is warning us about. And that is this. That, that discernment and the ability to tell between what is the Spirit of God and not is significantly, significantly important. We would start to ask ourselves, but Oliver, there's all sorts of heretics, right? There's all sorts of heresy. Agreed. There's all sorts of confusing messages. There's lots of expressions of church. There's lots of quasi-truths that you hear. And these, these, all the more because of passages like this, make it imperative that we, we discern through and read through what is the difference between the Spirit of God and the Spirit of the age? What's the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man? And I just have two simple passages that I want to leave us with um, today as I pray for us in close. But the first one is, is simple. It's, the, it's in 1 John 4. It's the, the teaching that John gives, the Apostle John, at the end of the Bible, in 1 John, one of the shorter books of the Bible, that explains the way that we're going to be able to tell the difference between the fruits of the Spirit and the fruits of the world. How do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference between what the Holy Spirit is doing and what man is doing? There was like a Francis Chan sermon I heard recently at this conference called The Send. It was a great sermon. Check it out on YouTube if you like. But basically saying there's a way that you can get church to work in a certain way that doesn't require the Holy Spirit. And he's saying there, there has to be this discernment between what man is doing and what God is doing. And we have to be fruit followers. This is what the passage says. Actually, let me read it out of um, Matthew first and I'll get to my first John passage in a moment. But this is the way. He's, he's like, child, I want you to know this. I'm not telling you this to make you scared. I'm not telling you this so you're worried about your salvation. I'm not telling you this so you can feel condemned. I want you to walk in the fullness of freedom. This is how you know if you're seeing the fruits of the Holy Spirit in your life. Verse 33, he says, listen, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad and its fruits will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruits. There's so many times in the scriptures, especially in Matthew, as he goes and turns the page, this is what it says in Matthew 7, into the kingdom of God, out of the old covenant and into the spirit-filled kingdom of God where we're under the spirit, not the law. He's like, there's going to be a lot of things that you're going to have to discern with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's better that he would come because he's going to counsel you into all kinds of truth. You need to lean on him, not your own understanding, to understand what the spirit of God is doing because it's not based on mental capacity. You have to see this thing with spiritual eyes. And he's saying, if you want to discern the difference between what is a move of man or a move of God, this is the point. You have to find the fruit. So here's the thing. Whenever we see on YouTube or anywhere else, including Francis Chan or anybody else that we would see, instinctively, when we see someone stand up and talk about or prophesy or speak about what the kingdom of God is like or what the spirit of God is like, we instantly got assigned a homework assignment. And that is, is there fruit on this tree or not? 
He's saying there's going to be lots of people with Bibles. There's going to be lots of people with microphones. There's going to be a lot of opinions and a lot of ways that, that man will try and communicate who God is. But they have all sorts of different motives. And he's saying what you need to do and I'm giving you license to do and I'm giving you as a child equipping the ability to do is to discern the fruit. You have to be able to tell the fruit. You have to be asking yourself the question, what would this person's kids say about them? What is the trail of a 10 years history about this person that can tell me about their fruit? Do they use scripture in context or out of context to be able to discern the fruit? Is there a level of peace or anxiety on them is the fruit? There has to be this really important ability in a New Testament ministry for us to be able, with the Holy Spirit, be guided into truth to discern the fruit. Because the fruit is telling us about the tree. We have to understand what is the fruit. Not just what are they saying, but how is the, the effect and impact of a person's ministry in life. We're not here to judge people. We're not here to decide, you know, sheep from goats. That's not our job. Our job is not to judge people. Our job is to discern fruit. And our job, when we let things into our life and into our reading and into our understanding and, and, and study in Scripture, we have to look at the person, not just what the ministry is saying or the message, but we have to look at the fruit. We have to see the impact of it. This is what Jesus is saying. And so there's two things. There's a qualitative and a quantitative, and then I'm done. Look at 1 John 4. These are important passages for discerning what the Holy Spirit is doing. We don't want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit by saying something God is doing is bad, right? But it would be equally as bad to say something that is bad and call it God. Because there's all sorts of ways that we can decorate and, and charade and you know, be a charlatan with the kingdom of God and make money off of it. And we've all seen that be, be used and abused. So he's saying, little children, I don't want you to be unaware People will blaspheme. There's all sorts of prophets. The way you discern is the fruit. There's a qualitative and a quantitative. 1 John 4, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world, this is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Listen, every spirit, every Every, every church service, every gathering, every movement or community that proclaims that Jesus has been come in the flesh deserves attention. Sometimes they don't dress like us, and sometimes their politics are different than us, and sometimes they, they're, they're part of the body of Christ if they're lifting up, if they say that Jesus is Lord and Jesus has come in the flesh. It's important and significant that we pay attention to it. Now, we're going to look into Galatians 5 about the qualitative measurement of what that is, like, how do they do? There's a difference between what are they accomplishing or what is the ministry accomplishing and, and, and how they do it, the values, not alone the vision, right? So the first thing is that I've got to ask myself the question in discerning the spirits, which there's all sorts of prophecies is what this thing is saying, is I've got to ask myself, does it create in its wake, well, pastor says this or this movement says this or this, you remember what this quote says or this quote says, no, no, does it uplift the name of Jesus, not is it big, not is it popular, not does it fit my politics, not does it, you know, get my agenda accomplished. It's like, does it have the name of Jesus on it is super, super significant. And that's what First John warns us as little children. We're discerning of the spirits and we want to know, does it lift up the name of Jesus? And does the influence of that, that movement create more commotion around the brand or around the name of Jesus? That's what we want to ask. And then secondly, in Galatians 5, but super um, popular and famous verse all about the fruits of the Spirit. Put your eyes on it and maybe meditate on what some of these words would mean today. The acts of the flesh are obvious. In other words, I don't care um, how rich or um, how uh, prominent a ministry would be. I don't care um, how successful something is. Um, I don't care if it makes you feel good or if it doesn't make you feel good. This is the, 
this is the rubric you're going to use. You're going to look out for things like sexual immorality, things of the flesh, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. So strong words here, right? But basically, you're going to see things that only, only man is about. That man has an unquenchable wanter and desires for things like fame, things like approval, things like um, attractiveness, and that's not new to the world or, or our experience. And when we see that, that's going to happen both in church and out of church and people that have influence of us or people that we don't listen to, and that's going to happen on a continual basis. And he's, and he's saying, you're not going to look out for necessarily all the quotes that they have, the scriptural quotes. You're going to look for the fruits of the Spirit, which are listed at the bottom of Galatians 5. And then I'm done. But the fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. If the things that you imagine as the, as the Spirit of God, or the things that you, you, you would look to as, as representing to you what God is about, because there's politicians want to talk about God, um, salesmen you know want to talk about God, um, our our bosses, our jobs. Um, it's it's it can be especially in the South a popular thing to stand for God and stand for the kingdom of God. But the qualitative measurement is does it create kingdom followers? And the qualitative measurement is more importantly than what we're talking about. How we're talking about it matters significantly. Is there a sense of surrender? Is there a sense of sacrificial love? Is there a sense that the fruits of the Spirit are evident? If the kingdom of God is present, which this is describing a place of the kingdom of God, a place where Jesus is Lord and a place where the fruits of the Spirit are on display. If that is there, then the Spirit of God is present. And to close our heart to that would be massively missing something that God would want to show us. This is our intentional question. I'll pray and close for us this morning. It says this, Where have you put the kingdom of God in a box, potentially. I want you to think about this today. Potentially, there, there are places that because of our ill uh, experiences with certain places of the church or the kingdom of God, we've closed off entire parts of what God is talking about, what God wants to do. Because it's unfamiliar, because it's not part of our background, because we can be prejudiced against it, we can begin to build a wall that is hard for Jesus to knock on in our heart. And some of the times, it's the things that, that we really need and desire, not just our felt need, but our real need, our longing for the things that are on the other side of that door. The things that Josh Sutton was knocking on my door about, the things that the Holy Spirit with Randy and Sheila, uh, I was going to say Clark, yeah, Randy and Sheila Brown were doing in their group. Those were things that needed, to be, that needed for me to open up and expand my mind, expand my prejudices, expand the box around my head about the kingdom of God because boxing in that kingdom, that, that's, that part of the kingdom of God was closing off my heart to the Holy Spirit. Potentially God is speaking to us rather than on, in relational ways. And so this is what it says, and how has it affected our relationship with the Holy Spirit? Potentially this morning, that's my closing statement, is that 
Um, the kingdom of God is visiting us in foreign ways, not just familiar ways. And potentially, um, our, our, our close-heartedness, our close-mindedness can stop and blind us and make us deaf to the very kingdom of God um, in our midst. Would you guys stand with me as I pray for us and close? Sorry to go a bit long um, this morning, but I just have a quick um, just ministry time on my heart this morning, specifically um, in the area of my personal life that I was sharing earlier. Um, but, but this is my prayer. Jesus, um, I thank you for continuing to pursue us, and um, I thank you for the truth that, that children see and that we have everything that we need uh, to know you. And our approach to you is to need you, not to prove you. And I thank you that every need is met in your name. And I thank you as we come to you with questions, with concerns, um, with issues, um, that you have an answer. But, my, but God, my response to you, my sense and conviction to you this morning is that, that there are ways that you want to speak that sometimes we're not listening. We're just not listening to you. Because of because of the offense or because of the ways that we've closed our heart or our mind towards, um, towards people and towards uh, different parts of the body of Christ, uh, because we've closed our hearts and closed our mind to those things, we've also closed our minds and our hearts towards you. And so, God, I, I thank you that as I've opened up the scripture, I've sensed for me in my life, and I've sensed for anybody that would be willing in our group this morning that as we'd be available to you, that you would surprise us sometimes even with foreignness. And that you would change the way that we would think rather than making God fit into a box that fits our prejudices or our style. That you would open up our heart to newer things and bigger things than we could imagine. And so I thank you for your presence ministry, your proximity ministry, and I thank you that you're close and not far. And I thank you that you're opening up our spiritual eyes that we might see you, know you, and respond to you in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.